0: Hello, and welcome to Weird Sisters, your Discworld recap podcast. I'm your host, Manning. Joining me is Danny. Hello. And Liz. Hi. We've got the whole gang back together. Yay, finally. It's been 8,000 years.
1: <laughs> it hasn't been that long, has it?
0: Who can say with <laughs> people messing around with the time stream?
1: Are any of us 15 years older D- that we mm-hmm. know of?
2: I don't know. I haven't noticed.
0: <laughs> it is 2004, right?
2: Yes, absolutely
0: Okay, good <laughs> Our book this month is Weird Sisters The book that gave our podcast its name I admit, this is an episode I have been dreading at least a little If only because I was struggling to figure out a good way to distinguish our show title from the episode title That's entirely on me So, before we get into it Are we giving a spoiler warning this one?
1: Yes y- Yeah <laughs> Very much yes.
0: (laughs) For the sake of clarity, in case anyone's jumping in in the middle, we give spoiler warnings for the books that we think are good introductions to the series. Well, let's get started. A slight tweak to the episode structure. Uh, The secret extra sister who haunts the dungeon of an ancient castle has switched over from writing plot summaries into gathering trivia. Speaking of which, we have a hefty assortment of factoids about this book ready to share. Published November 10th, 1988, Weird Sisters is the sixth overall Discworld novel, and second in the Witches subseries. The title comes, of course, from Macbeth, which this book directly parodies throughout, but the specific term weird, spelled W-Y-R-D, actually comes from the Old Norse term for destiny, making this the fourth book in a row where the title is a direct and explicit pun.
1: Magrat is a name found in the book The Witch Cult in Western Europe by Margaret Murray, and may itself be an earlier form of the name Margaret. That same book also includes Garlic among the last names of those accused of witchcraft, along with Nutter and Device, which you'll recognize from Good Omens. Hwell is derived from the Welsh name Hywel? Hi- yeah. I
0: think it's Hwell.
1: Hwell, okay.
2: Same pronunciation, different spelling.
0: Our apologies to the nation of Wales.
2: <laughs> um, aside from Macbeth, the story makes references to the story makes references to much of Shakespeare's canon, notably from Hamlet, but sprinkled with references to Julius Caesar, A Midsummer's Night Dream, and As You Like It, with additional references to the Marx Brothers and Andrew Lloyd Webber, among others. The uncountable standing stone is a reference to the Wright Stones a complex of megalithic monuments on the boundary between Oxfordshire and Warwickshire, which legend says will produce a different tally each time someone attempts to count them. The legendary witch Black Alice is a reference to English folklore about Black Annis, also known as Black Agnes or Black Anna, who supposedly lives in a cave in the Dane Hills.
0: As far as references to previous Discworld books, During the brief digression to Ankh-Morpork, we get a reference to Lord Vetinari, who debuted in the last book, but has finally acquired his legendary cunning that makes for the city's smooth operation. There's also a brief cameo from the librarian, but aside from him, this is the first book in the series without the Wizards of Unseen University.
1: Weird Sisters was nominated for the 1989 Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel, 135th In the 2003 Big Read survey, and has been adapted into a radio drama in 1995, a stage production in 1996, and an animated miniseries in 1997. That I recommend checking out if you need a confidence boost in your own artistic ability. The full (laughs) thing is on YouTube. I looked at the first three seconds of it.
0: (laughs) Also worth it for Christopher Lee as The Definitive Death. Yes. Yes.
1: About those uh, secondary productions, I saw, um, I was looking for an audiobook to speed up my reading. I also came across a recording that went through Mort, Weird Sisters, Guards, Guards, a a radio drama, but like of each of those books together. Wow.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, I believe it lasts about 14 hours, so... I wasn't yeah. able to use it for audiobook purposes because it's not an audiobook, but it is an adaptation that I plan on looking further into.
0: We open on a stormy night in the kingdom of Lanker, where three witches have gathered. These are Nenny Og, Magrat Garlick, and, returning from equal rights, Granny Weatherwax. At Magrat's suggestion, they have formed a coven. We've talked before about Granny Weatherwax, but what did you two think of Nenny Og and Margaret-
2: Magrat? I think they both like, provided really, like, complimentary, complimentary characters to Granny Weatherwax. Like, they have the right amount of, like, stick to while also having, like, conflicting amounts of blase about things. That just makes it so, like, it feels like none of them are ever in agreement about anything, but they're all kind of okay with that. It seems to
1: be in the witch's whole demeanor to be... Abrasive? It it was actually referenced at one point in the book that all beings, all magical peoples are inherently not going to get along because otherwise magic would take over and that is bad with a capital B. But their whole personalities, I I really liked them. I know I say that a lot for a lot of characters, (laughs) but the way they interact with each other really solidifies that. And especially the different types of witchery they perform. Like... Mm -hmm. Nanny Og, she seems very laid back about all sorts of things. She's willing in her own house she's willing to use uh commonplace items in place of the more fanciful ones that Magrat is so keen to. Magrat herself is sort of for those people who, who are who know those sorts of things, she's their link to this world sort of witchery with um her talk of sigils and different herbs and stones used for certain things she's she's more of a modern witch i would say
2: mm-hmm. yeah
1: but at the same time a less practical one
2: yeah she's a bit of a romantic bethink about everything and i especially think like that goody wemper uh Margaret's, like mentor goody's like very scientific way about magic Compared to like Nanny Oggs and uh, Granny Weatherwax's, is like more organic, kind of just like freeform, do whatever. is like a really interesting way to like see like magic is a very fluid thing in this world. And so there's not like one right or wrong way in about it. Yeah, I- exactly.
1: And it seems a bit difficult to follow in the footsteps of an innovator, which is why – which pun – is why it – seems to be that magrat in my opinion uh stumbles more than the others like they're constantly commenting on how she's she's new to this how there are a lot of things she doesn't understand how to do they blame it on her romantic and fanciful ideations but personally i would say it's more a result of her upbringing as a witch
2: magrat is like still a very young witch in comparison to the other two and i think it makes sense that she's still kind of trying to find her footing on the kind of witch that she is
0: I think there's also an element of just the difference between somebody just starting out, like, fresh-faced and eager to please and also terrified, trying to get everything done correctly, Mm -hmm. and these two just, like, old hands at it, who, like, know which corners to cut, what works and what doesn't.
1: And even for, as you say, old hands... Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og are very different. Even having come from the same area, they know the same rumors about each other growing up. they Their approaches are very different. Nanny Og is a city witch, and Granny Weatherwax ha- wants nothing to do with that whole life. For sure.
0: Granny Weatherwax always tends to dominate the books where she's a major player, but... McGrath is probably the more nuanced and relatable
2: character, I'd say.
0: Nanny Ogg does tend to be the least developed of the three, but she's a great counterbalance with a distinct voice and hedonistic attitude.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> to me, she provided quite a bit of comic relief just because her attitude made me laugh.
0: Absolutely. I think that's definitely her role, but not in a dismissive
2: way.
1: No, no, just she seems more content and she enjoys being uh, carefree. While at the same time, she's described in the narrative as being rather commanding of her family. It was a little difficult to reconcile the two, but once you did, it made for, oh, such an interesting perspective.
2: Oh, yeah. And I think that's something that is kind of seen in all of the characters, like the witches at least, is that um, they all have very like distinct, this is who they are. This is like their big character trait. But they all aren't, like, kind of pigeonholed just into that. They all, like, occasionally, like, disagree with themselves and, like, change their mind. And I think that's, like, really interesting to see that, like, oh, yeah, these characters are obviously, like, playing off of each other, but they're not just, like, characters of those. In in being
1: magical, they're also very human.
0: Meanwhile, the king of Lanker, Varence, has been murdered.
1: Dun, dun, dun. And according
0: to death is due to become a ghost.
1: A murder very chicken. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Most rooster, I believe is the term. <laughs> so King Verans doesn't really do a lot in the actual plot, but he's a major presence throughout the narrative. What did you two think of him?
1: Again, a lot of my my understanding of these characters comes from the mental image I bring up while reading. And so for King Verans and even... His ghost was, like, the same, but in shades of white. But King Verance was, like, this round, big, red-haired guy. Think in Sleeping Beauty, the Disney animated movie. Prince Philip's father. I found... it's It's not so much what I thought of him, to answer the question more directly. It's more what I thought of people's reactions to him.
2: Yeah, I think... I'm kind of in the same place with it because he's not in the book a lot, but we get to see like glimpses of what he's done through other people's reactions. So like the Duke's porridge always being super salty because King Verence's ghost has just been slowly like putting more and more salt in it when he can like sneakily do it.
0: But it's also just very interesting, the point about being largely defined by people's thoughts about him, because that is very much what the plot is about. Being able to twist the memory of him is very much central to the whole plan.
1: True, and that was that was a very good take. I can't yeah. say I'm incredibly familiar with Shakespeare's work. I haven't read or encountered any form of Macbeth or Hamlet outside of the Lion King, but... <laughs> So if there was reference to that in the form of how they went about trying to cover up the murder, I didn't understand it.
0: The murdered king's son has been taken from the castle, and, by a stroke of luck, the servant fleeing with him finds the three witches. So, for the third episode in a row, the story begins with a baby boy who has a huge destiny and an irrelevant mother. I won't blame anyone for feeling like this is a bit (laughs)
2: samey. Yeah. Oh, tropes.
0: Tempered does try to include a lot of like feminist ideas and a respect for people who have been historically oppressed. It informs a lot of his writing. Mm-hmm. But for all that, he does fall into a lot of common traps and tropes Yeah, that have some amount of sexist like implications, one of which being the completely absent mother. Yeah. And that's not quite the case for this specific one, for reasons we'll get into later, but I just wanted to bring it up as not skimming over the warts
2: i think that makes sense because i think terry pratchett like deep down was like a really really good guy who's genuinely trying to do his best but he was also like a white guy in the uk like nobody's perfect so
1: and besides this is this is a book about witches we should embrace the warts
2: (laughs) (laughs) so
0: granny nanny and magrat soon decides to have the boy adopted by a traveling theater troupe, where he will be raised far away from Lanker's current rulers, the manic Duke Felmet and his vicious wife.
2: The Duke is kind of a bit of a fool. Like, he's just kind of supposed to be a pawn in his wife's hands, it kind of seems like. But he's not just like, as we get to see throughout the course of the book, there's like a really like dark and sinister part of his character that we see with him feeling guilt over murdering king Verens, and it's like an interesting level of complexity that i was like really not like prepared for <laughs> but i think the duchess isn't necessarily as like well fleshed out like she just very much feels like a power hungry woman and that's like her character
0: that's fair and for kind of the first actually villainous, uh, female Discworld villain, Mm -hmm. it's not great.
1: Yeah. About the two of them, there were times when they were hard to read both what they're thinking, but at the same time, some of the subject material that was brought up was a little tough for me. But at the same time, I did enjoy their characters. Like, as villains, they weren't as complex as others that I've seen because most of what I've been seeing lately has been they have to be morally gray for them to be entertaining. Nah, these two are, they're tough. They are not inherently evil, so to speak, but they are bad. And that was, it was, it was good. I enjoyed that. Felmet himself, he sort of towed the line between villain and OMG, oh my gosh, what have I done? His madness was, that was Probably a draw to me because those are themes I do enjoy, like how how his his descent was written, the continued denial, and then the utter rejection of reality. They they played into the colors red and blue, with his in regards to his eyes, uh, madness being red and bloodshot, and blue being his his normal cold gaze. The whole thing with his hands, I'm glad got kind of dropped midway through because that hurt to read like i know that's a thing that people who it's a common thing it's a trope for people in those sorts of situations that what have i done um i've seen it with killers who didn't mean to do it like in felman's case or didn't want to i've seen it with doctors who couldn't who've been written as i couldn't save this person it's all my fault like But the way it kept getting played up and played up kind of seemed like it was for laughs, but honestly kind of hurt. The Lady Felmet, on the other hand, uh, the Duchess, she was a bit more intense in other ways. The way she towed the line was kind of an interesting read as she stepped forward as I am the true villain. That was kind of obvious the first time she opened her mouth. Um... But then she also you kind of forgot about her for a little bit. She sunk back into the shadows while Felmet took up his his royal duty. So she was very well played as the as ruling from the shadows. Yeah. And the end she came to, like her ideals, her encounter with Granny Weatherwax, and the very end in her escape, her failed escape, was uh I thought fitting. To be honest. It it brought up some commentary about the nature of people, but was also uh, very neatly tied up. Mm-hmm.
0: The hand-washing thing, that's directly from Macbeth. Okay. I just wanted to say that because you said you hadn't read it before.
1: My brother has, though. I'll probably be getting a uh, a lesson or two in that from him later on.
0: And I don't think that's meant to be humorous so much as it is meant to be horrifying.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Which brings me into a discussion on mental illness infection being neurodivergent because the duke is definitely coded as having neurological disorders most specifically bipolar disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder
1: I think people's first reaction and I know I found myself thinking this but that's just because I haven't studied up quite a bit uh quite enough would be they'd go their go to is oh it's some form of PTSD a violent form of PTSD
0: Perhaps, and I think that it being PTSD is definitely a valid avenue to consider. I just wanted to bring up those specific symptoms of the of his temperament switching back and forth and the obsessive hand washing, because there's a long history of using the trappings of mental illness to convey villainy, and it's not great and not meaningfully addressed in this book. The ex-king Varence haunts the castle, and the witches provide his baby son with the gifts of good memory, making friends, and, being what he thinks he is. However, the kingdom of Lanker communicates to Granny Weatherwax through its plants and animals that it is upset with the current ruler. Meanwhile, we meet the fool, the talentless yet intelligent jester of Lanker Castle.
1: He was a good character. Despite his name, you would think he would be more and en- directly entertaining. Um, some of his lines were difficult to read just because I'm not fluent in that form of English. But also, <laughs> he just, he served a different purpose.
2: Yeah, I don't entirely know how I feel about him. Like, I don't hate his character, but the relationships he has are really interesting. But he's not necessarily, like... He's a very morally kind of gray character to start out with until he kind of gets to the point where he's like, okay, I'm going to stick up for myself. I'm not going to just like be loyal.
0: I would argue that he is pretty strictly lawful good. And also to your point, Danny, about some of his lines being hard to read. I think that's very much intentional on Terry Pratchett's part because as he gets into with the discussion of the Fool's Guild, it's very much divorced from actual humor and being funny and is more about the strict delivery of very specific approved jokes.
1: Only slapstick, only puns, no stand-up.
0: And the abuse by the pool's grandfather is eh, kinda rough.
2: And like I th- I think that's just kind of a trend with this book in comparison to like all of the other Discworld books, is that at least the ones we've read so far. Is that it's got kinda of some like Darker, more serious moments in, like, ways that the other ones did not.
0: I remind you Mort was
2: about being the Grim Reaper. Yeah, but it's not, like, showing the symptoms of, like, untreated mental illness. I would say also that this book
1: very frequently served to defy expectations. Um, The king was far more carefree than the fool. The fool was far more miserable than anyone else um the wife was the the villain despite not being the murderer the murderer was repentant in some ways the witches weren't all at least one of them weren't what you would expect a witch to be um and even the villagers were content with how they meant to be ruled like
0: The Duke and Duchess, intimidated by the witches and frustrated that they have hidden the former king's child, began a campaign of wanton cruelty. The Fool, desperate to stop it, introduces them to the power of words to twist people's perceptions. This leads them to the idea of commissioning a play that will rewrite history so they will be seen as heroes, King Varence will be remembered as a monster, and the witches will lose the respect and awe of the populace.
2: I think it's really interesting, and I think it makes a lot of sense because it's like how we remember history is like history is written by the winners, you know, it's like, it's Mm -hmm. an interpretation of it. It's not inherently truth. And I think being like, this can be like a tool that is used. um, It's very interesting to call attention to. And especially in this context where it's obviously like people who have done wrong who are trying to make it so that it does not seem like they did any wrong.
0: And this is what I was talking about a little bit with the fool not being morally gray, is he's trying to prevent the duke and duchess from killing people.
1: Yeah. For the fool in that scene and in most of what he says, like he speaks of duty most often. He's supposed to follow his lord until death. He repeats this quite often. Um, So I would potentially argue that he may he has good intentions so i would say that he's more a lawful good forced into the role of a lawful neutral Mm
2: -hmm. yeah i think that's a fair interpretation of it i because it's this scene in particular where i was just kind of like why is he telling them this like he's just giving them a way to win
1: it was very smart it did immediately to me as well call to the mind that the, the that history is written by the victors It also, I felt, was very much in tune with the Discworld's uh, uh, silliness. Like, you have these horrible rulers enacting all of this destruction, all of this uh, aggression, violence. And yet, in one conversation, they are swayed from that into, Okay, we'll put on a play for everyone, and hopefully that will make them change their minds that... We are good people and that all that we have done to hurt our citizens has been for the greater good. It's it's amazing how all that ended up happening. I Personally, I feel like this book builds greatly on the attitudes of the people in the Discworld, just the everyday bystanders, rather than telling some grand story, which it also did. It filled in some gaps of what to expect and you know how i've mentioned before that um i'm just getting into this whole thing and how in previous books i mentioned that i had to just go with the flow this book really cemented home for me at least that this is the sort of thing that i can start to expect from the discworld this book
0: lays the groundwork for what i would call the thesis of the discworld series that being the power of stories Villain's plan is basically the way that such narratives work in our world. While later books will expand and explore the concept of stories being powerful, but my point is, if you want to pick a novel that represents the beating heart of Discworld, Weird Sisters is a top contender.
1: Read this to get a feel for like what you're getting into, but at the same time, very much after, like directly after that, read one of the more lighthearted stories so you get both <laughs> both sides of the coin, so to speak.
0: Granny Weatherwax refuses to let the Duke and Duchess continue to manipulate people, but also doesn't directly interfere with politics. So she does what I think we'd all do in her situation. Cast a spell of unprecedented power and scale across the entire kingdom, moving it 15 years into the future, so that the rightful (laughs) heir will be old enough to return and claim the throne.
1: Okay, Uh, first of all, excellent delivery. Um... Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Second of all, yes, that is something I would do. And I personally know people who would also do the same thing so as to avoid getting into politics. I liked it.
2: I liked it. The scene just kind of has this like whirlwind, like kind of manic energy where it's just like so much is just happening. And I think it really puts a perspective to like just how powerful the witches are, especially Granny Weatherwax. Considering, like Danny said, a lot of the magic is more grounded and like small scale. And it's not like these big sweeping things. It's not like Disney magic.
0: Yeah, there's a lot throughout the series on, uh, on being practical and not using magic for just every little thing. Yeah. And that is very much encompassed in the witch's whole philosophy. But when they use magic, they go big.
1: Yeah,
2: real big.
1: I had a lot of emotions about this particular scene. This was the point where I had to stop due to other obligations in the middle of this some would say climactic scene when i came back into it i had this this whole well this is going to happen okay this is this is happening it really it threw you around point of view to point of view person to person from what we've seen before we saw um very practical little things them we saw them blessing a child we saw them summon a demon but it was all very small scale this was huge this took three people and it was fantastic in its own right. But at the same time, you you watch this all happening and it's very real. It's very, well, Discworld real. But, like, it's not sparkles and flashes. Um, Terry Pratchett even makes a point of that with the time travel itself. You don't see the sun streaking across the sky uh, rapidly. You don't see the trees... Blooming and withering over and over again, you do however see Granny Weatherwax running being a speed demon and running out of gas. um you do see Nanny Ogg saying like, "Oh yeah, I did bring a drink like you told me, and I drank it, so you get you get things like that rather than special effect.
0: We join King Varence's son, Tom John, and the theater company as they are in the process of constructing a new theater in Ankh-Morpork. Tom John has grown to be a fantastic actor, especially appreciated by Huel, the dwarf who works as company playwright.
1: He was a minor character. We didn't see him very often. We him
0: throughout the book.
1: I liked his backstory. Again, I liked the expectation-defying nature of his character. He's a dwarven playwright rather than... Uh, minor as his people were known for he was interesting
2: yeah well has this like very grounded energy to use that word again for how many who knows how many times this episode um but he's just like a guy who works really hard at something he loves doing and he's trying to keep it all together to make sure like the show happens you know so we like See him falling asleep on the table with, like, mountains of crumpled up paper surrounding him. I don't know, he's just, like, this nice, like, little bit of a person to get to, like, see and, like, experience and meet and all that. But he's not, like, world-changing. But I don't, I think that's kind of, like, part of how he was written. He's the playwright. is in the background.
1: As a writer myself, that is so relatable.
0: And also very relatable is that, well, is a magnet for the particles of inspiration, which were introduced in sorcery.
1: Oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah,
0: and he is just constantly bombarded with ideas for plays and things, which I can relate to as somebody with a large mountain of unfinished projects.
1: Oh, man, I'm currently working on at least five, just simultaneously, just bouncing between them. Correct me if I'm wrong but didn't he have like a point where we saw him working on a play and he'd get you could basically see the the inspirational neurons I would suppose firing off and him getting the wires crossed and writing bits of another play in the midst of the one he's currently working on and while they should be separate because he's getting so much inspiration they all get smushed together
0: it's a little bit more of the Seeing things in his dreams.
1: I also liked the reference, um, as you mentioned, they were in building a new theater called The Disc with a Y rather than an I as a reference to the Globe Theater in London.
0: Because, well, it is William Shakespeare.
1: It's beautiful.
0: In fact, the Welsh version of his name is Cognate, I believe, with William. I remember reading that somewhere and I'm not 100% certain on it, so I'm sure we'll get letters.
1: (laughs) I'm sure we will. Either, oh, you caught that, cool, or you're wrong, you're wrong, (laughs) you're so wrong. This is the
0: first time the series has had a dwarf in a major role, and while some things he mentioned about dwarf culture do get retconned in later books, there is still a meaningful first glance at Discworld race relations. Because, you know, things like fantasy has to have racism in it, I guess. (sighs) Although that actually, there's a, a specific line from Death about how people will take all of the unpleasant things from the world they live in and then put them into their escapism. So there's not a complete absence of commentary on that. But anyway,
2: how do you feel about Tom John? From like the second, like the witches were kind of giving their blessings. I remember immediately thinking, oh, this is not going to work out. And I didn't quite know how it was going to happen. But I think it being like, he is an actor who can like, almost like physically become anybody he wants to
1: yes i i do agree on that although i was in that during that particular scene i was in more of a mindset of what granny meant by that like oh yeah he'll be able to he'll know who he is like that'll be that that's great especially for later on where i was assuming we'd have this well i knew he would have to confront like his heritage in some form because that's how the character was was being written um that's how the plot was developing in that direction um but at the same time i did fall into those traps again of assuming that this was how it would go and then it takes another direction entirely
2: i do think there's like a, a bit of like a magical quality about how he does that and i think that's part of like why when he's acting it's so like entrancing to the audience
1: yeah I even forgot about the blessings for a little while that when he came back um, as a child and then again as an adult, I was like, I was waiting for those to resurface because the first one that I remembered was the, um, he'll know all the words. And then he started quoting as a child, like, oh, that's what that is. That's what that is. And then um, I was later on looking like, oh, what were the other ones? What were the other ones? Oh, yeah. He'll make a lot of friends.
0: Well. I think it was more subtle, but he does make friends constantly throughout the story, especially with the fool, with the dwarf that they meet in the dwarf tavern, with all of the patrons of the mended drum, with the librarian.
1: He's good at stopping fights. Yeah.
0: And in this novel, that's the closest they can get to representing that without spending more time with Tom John, which honestly wouldn't be that unwelcome if we could get more time to understand him as a character and the rest of the players. But, you know, there's only so much space, I guess. The Fool comes to ankh Park and hires the theater company to write and perform the propaganda play for the people of Anchor. Along the way, Quell and the actors struggle with the story as it is supposed to be written. The witches, believing that Tom John is returning to overthrow the Duke, attempt to guide their travel to mixed success.
1: That was funny. Yeah. (laughs) That was really funny. Especially since they got in the way. Uh,
2: This is obviously like very, very in character for them. So,
0: eventually the actors arrive in Lanker and begin the performance. The witches are horrified when they realize that the play is not going to ruin the Duke as they hoped, but will instead cement the narrative he has been constructing and secure his dominance over Lanker and its history. Thinking quickly, the witches sneak into the show to replace the actors playing their characters, as does death in a brief scene where he gets stage fright.
2: I loved that. I loved it so much. (laughs) He tap danced. That really changes like all of Mort for me. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's just like wherever he goes, it just sounds like he's wearing tap shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Or heels.
0: The witches flip the script of the play making the performers reenact the events of King Varence's assassination as they actually occurred. When the fool corroborates the story, it breaks the Duke's fragile psyche, and he attempts a murder-suicide with a fake knife before falling off a lanker cliff.
1: As someone who owns one of those kinds of of fake knives that he was using with the the point that pushes in, I was very pleased. (laughs) (laughs) I have used such a knife on occasion... Where it has been necessary on Halloween to murder my own brother in cold blood,
0: <laughs> uh just want to make an official statement. The Weird Sisters podcast does not endorse murder
2: <laughs> that is true that is true. <laughs> this scene is just like when everything starts to kind of like click into place and the like actors start acting the like events as they actually happen, it just kind of felt like. Before that, it was kind of, like, chaotic and messy, and there's just kind of, like, everybody being like, okay, let's just get through this. And then it, like, it was this kind of, like, moment of catharsis when the witches did what they did and everything was like, okay, this is the end.
0: The story is no longer fighting their telling of it. Yeah. It's also familiar to anyone who has spent time in theater.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> With the Duke broken and gone, Granny Weatherwax confronts the Duchess by breaking down the mental barriers that prevent people from seeing the things they do as evil. But the Duchess just laughs it off before Nanny Og knocks her out with a prop cauldron.
1: That is, I will say it, state it right here, right now. I love the trope of a villain or some character being so focused on the person in front of them, so triumphant, so ready to win, and then bam, right from the back, they get hit over the head. <laughs> uh-huh. It's so satisfying.
2: It's like, yeah, go Nanny Ogg.
0: <laughs> There's also, I think, some thematic resonance of her being undone by by the props of the propaganda.
1: Hmm. It It just dawned on me, though. Dramatic irony. This whole book is full of it. In the most literal terms. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, uh... I feel like more of the point of this section, while the, the the beaning with the cauldron was rather satisfying, um the more outstanding scene was the fact that she after her entire self was laid bare before her, the Duchess accepted all of that so quickly and just admitted to herself that she was this horrible person and would do it again that was powerful i would say like even even though she has done all this i can admire the fact that she accepted herself in her entirety um to draw video games into it because of course uh, I've played through, I'm on my second playthrough, but I've recently been watching a few different streamers play through Persona 5 where this is a huge theme of your true self coming out either ready to fight for you or fight against you. In the cases of the villains of those series, those uh, sections of the game, they can't handle their true self. And so they confess to all their all the deeds that they've done and... um demand at, they turn themselves in they demand to be taken to prison while usually crying over the fact that they've done all these horrible things but she didn't
2: yeah that's like the one thing i will give the duchess's character is that this like scene added like an interesting bit of complexity where she was like no i'm an awful person that's who i am normally
1: when you hear those words it's from somebody's like somebody who's trying to take the blame off themselves well oh i'm a terrible person. No, she genuinely meant it.
2: Yeah. Just owning that.
0: Now that the throne is cleared, Tom John can step up to rule. There's just
2: one small problem. He
0: doesn't want to be king. For a moment, there is hopeless confusion, until Magrat discovers that Tom John and the Fool have a familial resemblance. Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og confirm that the Fool is in fact Tom John's older half-brother and can therefore assume the throne as King the Second.
1: I can't say I saw it coming, but I did, for a split second, because I immediately forgot, think that something was up when uh, the apple peel revealed that his name was Varence. I thought it was um quite a coincidence, considering he was just this this kid, and the Fool's Guild was in Ankh-Morpork, so how would he have known that Varence was a king? Um, if his family didn't come from Lanker. while well, at the same time, I only really started thinking something was actually up when Tom John and, I love that name by the way, uh, and Varens too met each other in the alleyway as just Tom John, the actor, and the fool. When, um, Huel, I believe, saw what he considered a trick of the light, that they looked, Uh, that they had a resemblance.
2: After Magra does this spell with the apple peels to figure out the fool's name, it's used like once and then it never comes up again. And I was like, that's odd.
0: But this twist is very heavily foreshadowed early on in the book.
1: In all of the best ways, like in, in good writing kind of ways, not like shove it in your face kind of ways. Whereas uh, there have been times like when you watch a movie and you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen and then it does. And that's not always
0: a bad thing, as some folks have been dis- discussing in the wake of certain pop culture phenomenons coming to a conclusion.
1: I-, I had that exact phenomena happen when I went to see Detective Pikachu and I was very pleased with that. Detective Pikachu was really good. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard.
0: So Tom John returns to acting. Varence becomes king and the day is won. Except for one loose end, the Duchess has escaped imprisonment, and is hell-bent on regaining power and returning to enact revenge. However, the Kingdom of Lanker warps itself around her, trapping her in the forest to be dealt with by the animals. Kind of spooky, but also, like, very appropriate.
2: Yeah, it's like you can't give that kind of character, like, a happy ending. (laughs)
1: I don't think
0: one tends to do recurring villains, with like one or two notable
1: exceptions. I look forward to seeing that, um, and that's that's not sarcasm, even though it may have sounded that way. I'm glad that they they did sort of foreshadow a little bit with having the all the beasts come forth under the influence of the kingdom as a being, which one really cool, two really scary, three. I don't want that to ever happen to me. I've read enough about um, the ways of the wilds. (laughs) No thank you. Yeah. Um, But they they pulled a similar stunt with Granny Weatherwax, and I'm glad that wasn't just a one-time thing, just to show off the power of the kingdom as an entity.
2: Yeah. And I feel like this kind of gives, like, the final note on... The kingdom getting what it wanted. We could have just, like, assumed, okay, like, there's a different king, all everything is all good to go. But no, to be like, no, the kingdom is going to get its, like, get what it wants. One of the lines did very well by that. The
1: kingdom exhaled. Mm-hmm. Just that.
0: This does establish something that will be coming back later. Of ideas far more powerful than individual people and able to mm-hmm. exert a will of their own.
1: Yeah, I I really want to see that come back because I was entranced by the whole idea, like with with Granny Weather with the the New Year coming and there not being anything strange happening, and the the whole way that was set up was phenomenal.
0: Meanwhile, the other two witches privately let M- Magrat know. That Varets isn't actually the king's bastard son, but the queen's. Which technically doesn't fit the laws of succession, but it is good enough. The three weird sisters return to their homes, and the kingdom breathes a sigh of relief. Close curtain Company company bow. So, did you two enjoy reading the book?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's not to love? You've got witches, you've got death, you've got time shenanigans, and uh, probably one of the best quotes I've ever read. Unironically, that would be the fool jingled miserably across the floor
2: and thespians. Well, everything's
0: improved <laughs> by thespians.
1: Hmm, true. But yeah, I did, I did enjoy this. This one has shot up to. High in my rankings of the six books so far, Mort is also up there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Light Fantastic is also up there. Mm-hmm. Really, I did
2: enjoy that one. Yeah, hmm, fair enough. I think this one is like really reflective of how Terry Pratchett was growing as a writer at the time, because this like, but this one feels like a book, like capital B book with the little trademark symbol. Like it's just like I actually think it
0: might have been equal
2: rights. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But yeah, because it just it's this very like cohesive like piece of storytelling where everything was like driving towards this end and not like a collection of like
1: vignettes in it. That's that's kind of interesting because equal rights was our other witch's book and it also dealt with didn't that one also deal with some some darker themes?
0: Equal rights dealt with patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's one. That's pretty dark.
1: Yeah. Or maybe not dark, but heavy, rather. Yeah, is a good way to put it. Uh, don't bring this up at the Thanksgiving dinner table, type.
0: I spend most Thanksgiving shoveling mashed potatoes into my face. Mm.
1: We did mention a little bit of the... I had to look it up. It is a trope. It is on TV tropes. Fantastic racism. It does. It does permeate things. Like, I know I have certainly unintentionally added things into my own works, taken them out and then decided that they fit and put them back in. um, Partially as a means of dealing with those things, being able to change the script on my own terms, uh, partially because Mm -hmm. it's hard to separate from reality when you're writing a different reality. Yeah. And that's, that's the only point I wanted to make.
0: So there are two running gags that I think kind of define this book. One is the exercising of droit de seigneur, the supposed right of feudal lords to sleep with vassal women on their wedding nights. So not to kill the fun, but that just sounds to me like legally codified rape and kind of makes my skin crawl. Rightfully so. Historians now debate whether it was a real thing, and I hope it wasn't. Really, I wouldn't bring it up, if were it not for the fact that King the I making use of it is what led to the Queen having her own affair, and is therefore part of the plot. Consent, kids. It's important. The other running gag I wanted to talk about, on a lighter note was the permanent ambulatory storm, characterized as a struggling actor.
1: Yes!
0: (laughs) This I liked a lot because it reinforced the theme of stories and reality influencing each other in a way that added charm and flavor to the language.
2: The storm might be like my favorite character, honestly.
0: My only wish regarding this gag would be that the storm would have participated in the plot a little bit more. I'm thinking specifically when the Duke's mind has snapped after the play, if a bolt of lightning had startled him into falling from the castle, as opposed to just him tripping, that would have been a nice closure to the Duke's plot and the final triumph of reality over those who try to warp it, which I think is also very much represented in Nenny Og hitting the Duchess with the cauldron, and with the Duchess getting killed by the kingdom. I would say, it's important to be critical of things you enjoy, and I really like this book, and I think it could also have been improved in certain ways.
1: I really, really loved that storm. Just like things like that personified just do a heart good.
0: So I also want to talk about the romance between Magrat and the Fool.
1: Yes, yes, I, I also want to talk about this a little bit. So first,
0: the scene where they meet is partially based on Hamlet, with Magrat collecting flowers and talking about them. But while Ophelia spoke about symbolism while handing them out, Magrat talks to herself about medicinal application. It illustrates Terry Packard's vision of witchcraft as emphasizing the practical, which notably informed the character of Anathema Device in Good Omens. Magrat, with her jewelry and makeup, is the most fanciful of the three witches, but she still chooses a bread knife over a protective amulet. She's still very much focused on the real. Second, while the compulsory heterosexuality of the Discworld is annoying, this is probably the best romance yet. Magrat and the Fool actively show interest in each other throughout the story, they fumble and fight in a very human way, and their relationship informs their character arcs. The Fool undergoes more clear growth than Magrat, which I personally attribute to Granny Weatherwax taking the focus of the witch scenes, but I still feel that Magrat became more confident and willing to speak up for herself, directly inspired by her love for the Fool.
1: I am nodding my head. Um, (laughs) Yes, yes, I, I do agree. I would just have to add, though, that at the end, I understand that Magrat was very uninformed, and as far as I know, she, despite Granny Weatherwax's advice, never got that lesson from Nanny Og that she <laughs> probably should have, given some of the events that transpired later in the book, or in the, the, the mid-to-late sections. um, Well, at the same time, like, she seemed to know her way about what she was doing to some measure. By the end of the book, I was left with kind of an unclear picture of what actually happened between the two of them. I know the fool Verence as king went to her house like with a peace offering of like, I'm sorry, I haven't been able to see you. But I don't even know if she was there at the time because it immediately cut to their last meeting. And instead of deciding a new time, they just decided to go back to their own homes.
2: The way I kind of interpreted it is when the fool goes to my house. It's when she and the other witches are holding, like, their meeting. So, like, she's not there. It's kind of, like, going to be, like, they're going to take that moment when they get, when she gets back. To kind of, like, reconcile and be like, I'm sorry, like, let's work on this.
1: As a romantic at heart, I I have to say I like that interpretation. I always like for there to be a happy ending. I know that there isn't always, and that's fine. But for these two, it, um, as you said, Manning, it did feel much better than the other romances we've had. Mm-hmm. Partially because I think we had more of an understanding of these characters, they weren't just there to be in the background, like in sorcery. But they did seem to grow together more, and that's always something I like to see. The amb- I just wasn't too much of a fan of the ambiguity at the end, but at the same time, I probably wouldn't like it if it was any other way.
0: At the risk of spoiling it for you. Like, these characters come back. This is not the end.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly hope so because I know there are more more witches books and the way it was left off there was like there's potential there. Yeah. I always like to see potential at the end of a story.
2: About your first point, the one where Mugrat like is this Kind of romantic, this kind of like fantastical kind of witch, a little less like organic and like down to earth as like Nanny Ogg and Granny Weatherwax. Despite like all of her like costuming and all that stuff, like she still picks the bread knife as the thing to defend herself. And I think it kind of goes back to that thing I said earlier about how like the characters are a bit more complicated than they would be at like at first glance. Like taking the protective am- amulet while probably being like more on brand with her character is not necessarily what she is, like, gonna see as the right option in that scenario. And so she goes the more practical route, even though that's not who she typically is.
1: I would also give some credit to that for her character development over the course of the book. Like, she's, she's definitely learned from her senior witches, and that was also very nice to see that she wasn't just uh, set in her ways, a defiant young person character. That wouldn't feel right, even for this universe, maybe in a different story setting but for the witches and what we know of them being so set in their ways feels a lot more wizardly than than witchy i'm
0: not sure how much i agree i think you're not wrong in any particular spot of it at the same time that scene with the bread knife magrat is also like slathering herself in makeup and such which may be less about the witchiness and more about her personal insecurity
1: cuz like she knows she's going to end up in danger so she takes a knife But she had also had an encounter with the fool in the past, and so I I wonder if she was also thinking she might see him again, and so was trying to, uh, work with those insecurities. Either that or look intimidating.
0: (laughs) I mean, it worked. There was that line about making a sign to ward off the evil (laughs) eye (laughs) shadow. Now it's time for the casting call, and this month we're doing something a little bit different. We have opened up the casting call to you, the listeners. We have been posting about it on various social media. Speaking of which, if you're not following us, there will be a link wherever you're getting this. You use the internet, you'll be able to figure it out, no worries. But we're on Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube. Granny Weatherwax, you recall, was in Equal Rights, so we cast her in that episode as Whoopi Goldberg. Forward your complaints to someone else. <laughs> so, Danny, Liz, who is your pick for Magrat?
2: Kind of leaning towards Emma Chambers. Laura Carmichael is like a very, very close second. I was actually
1: the other way around. I had uh, Laura Carmichael as first and Emma Chambers second. Full disclosure, I am just going off comparing actor faces to my own personal imaginings.
0: So who's your pick for Nanny Ogg?
1: I had to pick Joe Brand. I think she could do well in that role. I think I'm
2: gonna pick Miriam Margoyles.
1: Yeah, I'll commit to that. <laughs> Who did you two pick for Duke Felmet? I went with Nigel Planner. Although Danny
2: DeVito really threw me off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm agreeing with you. I, I think Nigel Planner, because he's got this like good vulnerability in there. He can like also be like really stoic looking and serious looking. Who are your picks
1: for Lady it? While Helena Bonham Carter was a strong contender, I believe I would cast Angelica Houston.
2: Yeah, same. I just really love her in, like, general, so. <laughs> the deceased King Verence. Yeah, this is another one I was, like, super, super torn about. I did
1: mention how I had pictured King Verence, so I, of course, had to go with Brian
2: Blust. And I think, uh, I think I have to go with Henry Cavill. How about your picks for Huel? This one I had picked out Tim Downey.
1: I agree. I would also go with Tim Downey, but again, Peter Dinklage, great choice there. He has has the versatility. He can do it.
0: For Tom John, who'd you pick?
1: I think I have
2: to go with Charlie Rowe on this one. Me too, actually. And I think it's largely because he's just the youngest person on the list. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And last
2: one, The Fool. I picked Harry Lloyd. He was one of my two, because it was between him and Paul Dano.
0: We'll see how this works if people enjoyed it, and if you have feedback on it, please give it to us. That will affect how things go the next time we do this.
2: Yeah, we're all trying to work this out as we go, so. So we're almost at the end, which
0: means it's time for the favorite footnote.
2: Several sellers of hot meat pies and sausages in a bun had appeared from nowhere, and were doing a brisk trade. Footnote. They always do, everywhere. No one sees them arrive. The logical explanation is that the franchise includes the stall, the paper hat, and a small gas-powered time machine.
0: So, that's the end of the show. Want to thank you two for joining me on this journey.
2: Of course. Never thank a you. problem.
0: And, of course, a big thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music. Check your local library for the next book in the series. Time to walk like an Egyptian. It's Pyramids. Until next time, The, the turtle, turtle Moves. moves.